You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have an art history degree, and today I have one shot, one opportunity to record this episode. If you are listening, as I know many of you do, the day that this episode is released, you will know that it is coming out a day late. Um, That is because I have had the most horrific cold. I think it's a cold. It's not covid um, for over a week, almost almost a week and a half at this point, and my voice is just now back to what I would call like a semblance of its normal quality, and I didn't want to make you listen to what I sounded like in the last week. That would have just not been fun for anybody. Anyway, you can you can thank me for that in the reviews that I know you're all going to go leave for this show, along with a five-star rating. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, also, I hope that you all enjoyed our Art Bite format, which was the episode preceding this one. I heard from a few listeners who really did enjoy it, so I'm excited to say those will be continuing. I have two other subjects, also somehow both rooted in Tudor England, um, already lined up for our next few Art Bites, so stay tuned for those. Allow me to just briefly remind you how this podcast works or inform you if you're new here, and then we will dive right into the meat of today's episode. So if you are new here, the premise is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art or sometimes several that can tell us a story from the past. I will also be posting the artwork in question and some supplemental images over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, if you haven't already, go ahead and give the page a follow. It will only, of course, save you time for future episodes and let you know when the next one drops. I will guide us through a look at some of the pieces today. Uh, There's a few of them we're going to look at um, together and we will explore the bigger picture behind them. So for today's episode, I I love a theme. I think that's something, if you've been listening to this show since its inception, you might have picked up on. Like, I like to tie episodes into holidays or things that are happening in the world. Um, today is what I'm recording this on June 29th, which means that next week is July 4th, America's Independence Day. I haven't really done an Independence Day episode yet. Uh, for the like a very America centric episode, you know what I mean? So that's what I wanted to do this month. Um, Don't worry, it's not going to be like, like an overly literal (laughs) reading of like our founding myths. No, that's not what we're doing. I'm kind of coming at this episode from a sideways perspective through the side door, if you will, because today I want to talk about one of our most iconic American painters, Grant Wood. 
He is probably best known for his double portrait depicting a man and a woman on a farmstead. You know that as American Gothic. But Grant Wood's career encompassed so much more than this one picture, and it was marked by a desire to, quote, fashion a world of harmony and prosperity that would answer America's need for reassurance at a time of economic and social upheaval occasioned by the Depression. Yes, so we are not diving straight into, like, America's founding. No, we're, we're catching up with America when she's in part of, like, her darkest chapter. Well, argue, arguably. Anyway, <laughs> Grant DeVolson Wood was born in Anamosa, Iowa, a suburb of Cedar Rapids, on February 13th, 1891. Cedar Rapids is where he would find his earliest commercial success, and I think he considered, like, that his hometown, his home base. His interest in drawing and painting, quote, blossomed in the Cedar Rapids public schools, and he began submitting work to competitions in 1905, when he won third place in a national competition and resolved to become a professional artist. But Wood's career began not with painting, but in the decorative arts. After graduating from high school, he spent two summers studying metalsmithing with arts and crafts movement designer Ernest A. Batchelder at the Handicraft Guild in Minneapolis. He then moved to Chicago, where he joined the Kalo or Kalo, K-A-L-O, arts and crafts community, a workshop and a training facility for artisans in the suburbs. He was living in Park Ridge, Illinois, to be specific. He also took night classes in the fine arts at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. In 1914, he opened the Voland Crafts Shop with a fellow craftsman and began to submit jewelry and metalwork to the Art Institute's prestigious annual decorative arts exhibitions. Nevertheless, he wasn't very successful commercially at this time. He closed the shop and he returned to Cedar Rapids in 1916 to launch instead a painting career. Now, this decision, this move, did not entirely end his work in the decorative arts. He would continue to work in decorative fields like smithing and other kinds of design well into the next few decades. What's more, after he shifted to the fine arts, Grant Wood retained some of the ideology and the, quote, pictorial vocabulary of the arts and crafts movement. That movement promoted the simplicity of design and truth to materials that he would kind of carry into his painting career. He owed his use of flat decorative patterns and intertwined organic forms to that movement, as well as his belief that art was a democratic enterprise that should be accessible to just like the average everyday person, not just the elite. One decorative piece that I absolutely adore that Wood completed in 1925 came from a series of commissions that he received to decorate the dining rooms of hotels across Cedar Rapids, Sioux City, and Council Bluffs, Iowa. And and this is where this episode starts to get very, very American. The Whitney Museum tells us, quote, For each one, he created what became known as an Iowa corn room, so-called because its decorations revolved around the theme of Iowa corn, subject matter that would come to dominate Wood's art. 
you will see a central part of those Iowa corn rooms over on the Instagram for a commission from hotelier Eugene Eugene, he's not French, Eugene Epley, to decorate the dining room of the Montrose Hotel in Cedar Rapids, Wood teamed up with fellow artist Edgar Britton to create a number of corn cob chandeliers. It's green, it's gaudy, I absolutely love it, and I would, I would love to own one, actually. I would hang it right in my living room. He also created a, quote, 360-degree panoramic mural depicting a harvested cornfield and a frieze reproducing the lyrics of the Iowa corn song. I did not look up the lyrics to the corn song. I would, I don't want to make light of such a, like, national piece of literature. Um, so I'm just going to leave that out. But I encourage you to go, to go look it up. Wood did travel to Europe four times to study after making his switch to the fine arts for a total of 23 months spent on the continent between 1920 and 1928. And from what I can tell, he lived kind of a bohemian lifestyle while he was there. That has been scrubbed from his public persona for reasons that we will, I think, later encounter a little bit more. Like many Americans of the 1920s, Wood looked to Europe as the center of art and culture. He primarily studied the work of the French Impressionists. Their loose brushwork and their painterly application of color is very prevalent in the first two decades of Wood's career, in which he painted what he later called Europey looking subjects. I have one of these um, on the Instagram as well. It is a just like a really pretty landscape painting he did. It's called Loch Vale. And it's pretty indicative of his style at this time. It was in 1928, however, when he took a trip to Munich, Germany, that Wood found his greatest source of stylistic inspiration. For it was the art of the Northern Renaissance that actually had the lasting impact on Wood's artistic style. To use a word that's hip with the kids on TikTok these days, Wood was essentially de-influenced on this trip. He moved away from producing paintings in an impressionistic style, instead adopting a tight, stylized technique that calls to mind the highly finished canvases of Jan van Eyck or the crisp, detailed etchings of Albrecht Dürer. It would be his assimilation of this style that would ultimately launch him into America's artistic memory. But as with his switch from the decorative to the fine arts, Wood could adapt his style to whatever a project or a commission called for. He became increasingly sought after for his artistic touch in building and decorating projects, and he was known as Cedar Rapids' leading resident artist. In 1930, while working in his hometown of Cedar Rapids, Wood traveled about 78 miles south to attend an art exhibition. While he was on a tour of the area, he and his host passed by a house built in the Carpenter Gothic style, which had been popular in the 1880s. In later interviews, Wood said that he was so struck by this house because he found the window that it had above the front door amusing. He called it pretentious for such a small house. Yes, this is the original American Gothic house, which you can actually still visit today. On their website, they say, come see the facade that inspired one of the most iconic pieces of American art. The house is actually a lot smaller than you might expect. And as for that pretentious window, it is it is true. It, it looks more like it belongs on a church than it does on like an average everyday home. It's likely that it was included in the house's design to bring a touch of that beauty and elevation into the residents' everyday lives. 
But research into the house itself did later reveal that the Gothic window is not merely decorative, it was actually hinged and was used to move furnishings either into or out of the upper floor, as the inner stairway of the American Gothic house has a tight corner and is not suitable for moving large pieces of furniture. Anyway, upon spotting this house, Grant Wood asked his host to pull over, he started sketching it, and when he returned to his studio in Cedar Rapids, he asked his sister, Nan Wood Graham, and his dentist, Dr. B.H. McKeeby, to come in and sit for a painting. Yes, the man and the woman in American Gothic, that iconic <laughs> painting that we've all seen so many times, who we all interpret as being husband and wife, or maybe, maybe father and daughter, they were thrown together completely at random. American Gothic is not a portrait then, but it is almost a complete fantasy. The models for the artwork never even posed together while they were sketched for Wood's picture. Wood also added the barn that is on the side of the canvas to the house's property. In reality, there isn't one on that site. He was clearly more interested in creating a scene that evoked strong feelings of what it meant to exist in the heart of America, even if the precise moment that we're looking at never actually occurred. That doesn't really matter to the viewer, however, because of how strongly American Gothic does invoke the mythic ideas that we have about a classic American scene. The painting's now iconic status in American imagery is in some ways a testament to the American mindset itself. Just one angle of interpreting the scene comes from the, quote, association that Americans have with their homes as extensions of their themselves. In rural America, a home not only signified family, but also the mutual hard work of its members and was the family's greatest financial possession. But the painting has been parodied so many times in so many different ways that this this can't be the only reason that it resonated so widely, and resonated for both good and bad reasons. Initial audiences were struck by the two figures in the painting. East Coast critics decried them for representing rural backwardness. But the Midwesterners who saw the painting protested, saying they don't look like this, insisting that they were not backwards. The piece polarized from the outset, and it was widely reproduced as a result. Sarah Kelly Oler, the curator of American art at the Art Institute of Chicago, which houses the original American Gothic, says, It has become so famous as an image that many people don't realize that it actually was and still is a painting. In their minds, it is no longer an object. In some ways, the idea of an original has become degraded in our digital era. Oler also says, quote, the painting has come to represent a certain perspective of American values, whether intended or not by wood. These can be interpreted in various ways, depending on who you are and how you see American culture. But any discourse on, quote, American values rightfully encourages people to think about, question, and reinterpret just what that means. Ultimately, this painting has become a site of social commentary. It can be transformed in so many ways, using celebrities we recognize or just different types of people, as a way of tapping into larger questions about American society, politics, history, and so on. And that is something that kind of permeates across most of Grant Wood's work from this point on. American Gothic was exhibited publicly for the first time at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1930, when Woods submitted it into the museum's annual exhibition of American paintings. 
It won Wood a $300 prize, not the top prize, but nobody talks about the actual winners, so the true reward here was clearly the instant fame that the painting also achieved. Wood used this as a launching pad to a true artistic career. He co-founded the Stone City Colony to help artists weather the Great Depression, and he also taught in the art department at the University of Iowa. In these roles, he, quote, heralded the message of regionalism in the face of a move towards increasing abstraction in American art. Now, it was Wood himself who announced that regionalism was indeed a movement at a 1931 arts conference, a movement which, quote, advocated for a realistic style and recognizable subjects that showed local places and common people, a radically different approach from European modernism and its push toward abstraction. He linked up with fellow Midwestern artists Thomas Hart Benton and John Stuart Curry to form a trio of regionalist painters. Oler says, quote, They wanted to promote the Midwestern region and their artistic styles as being not only appropriate for American art, but exemplifying it as this time. They even did a photo shoot dressed in overalls. I have a picture of that on the Instagram. She goes on, quote, But Wood was successful in making the Midwest a site of serious art making. Across his career, Grant's works celebrated and sometimes satirized, lovingly, quintessential Americans and especially Midwestern values and people. The, quote, iconic imagery he created in American Gothic and subsequent works has been adapted and parodied regularly, serving as a reflection of changing American values and ways. Almost above all, regionalism sought to, quote, revive idealism by updating the American myth. This was in direct contrast to the other camp of realist painters who were operating in the United States at this time. These were the social realists. They sought to depict the true conditions of mostly the working classes, quote, as a means to critique the power structures behind those conditions. And often they were gunning for social reform. Both schools of American realist painters operated between World War I and World War II. They increased in importance, especially during the Great Depression. But it was regionalism that rejected most strongly the types of European abstraction that had seeped into American painting as a result of wartime and economic anxiety. If the social realist's work was often gritty and unflinchingly focused on the present, the regionalist's work was gentle and nostalgic. Grant Wood's paintings in this vein often have an added tinge of wry humor that kind of sets him apart. But make no mistake, underlying the regionalist's readable and pleasing facades lay, in their opinion, the nation's cultural backbone. There, there was a real sense of nationalism and optimism here. That overt sense of nationalism did trouble some critics, who had one eye on a more problematic type of nationalism, which was rising over in Germany. But nonetheless, Wood's paintings took root as reassuring images of America's heartland during a time when most folks had faced their share of national crises. Ultimately, his paintings perpetuated our history and also our mythologies, and these were allowed to permeate our national consciousness because they were thought to serve a much larger purpose. The painting that I want to focus on to hone in on today, I think has like equal parts myth and reality imbuing it. 
The year following Wood's creative and commercial success from the exhibition of American Gothic, he put his brush to panel once again, but this time turned to a more deeply rooted American myth as his subject, the legendary story of American patriot Paul Revere. You might know this story, if you grew up in America, from cartoons or picture books from your childhood, or from the 1860 poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I've, I've never had a great, like, dramatic presence voice, but I'm going to do my best here because this is a spoken word poem, as you might know. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Those opening lines of Paul Revere's ride are perhaps the best known of Longfellow's words. They are certainly used to teach school children the tale of this hero of the American Revolution. I remember reading them in our like designated hour in the school library when I was in third or fourth grade. The poem is imbued with that very rhythmic measure and steady rhyme. It's meant to evoke a galloping horse, and it takes the reader along on a journey into Paul Revere's fabled Midnight Ride. The poem follows a few of the broad swaths of history, which I do have a feeling that almost every American vaguely remembers from school. Revere told a friend and fellow patriot to prepare signal lanterns in the Old North Church of Boston. These would be used to inform him whether the British were going to attack by land or by sea. The poem tells us that he would await the signal across the river in Charlestown at the ready to sound the alarm throughout Middlesex County, Massachusetts. In the poem, we follow Revere's friend as he climbs up the church steeple and sets up two lantern signals, informing Revere that the British are coming by sea. Revere then rides his horse to warn the patriots across the county, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, although the big names that we remember are Lexington and Concord. For this was the eve of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and the fabled shot heard round the world. This is the military episode between the American militia and the British army, which represents the opening of the American Revolution. Now, this is all based on a real episode from history. Longfellow, however, took significant poetic license with the historic facts concerning Paul Revere in his poem. And Grant Wood's depiction of the event has this in common with the words that we all kind of know. A responsible reading of either is with the understanding that we are taking in a fable, a heroic tale, the basis of sagas that are intended, ultimately, to inspire civic pride. I do have, of course, the painting over on the Instagram. I would invite you to pull it up now. If you're searching for the painting, you will be pleased to know that it just has the same title as the poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. The perspective of Wood's painting is from a bird's eye view, from which vantage point we can see a minuscule Paul Revere on horseback racing through the center of a colonial town. The scene is Lexington, Massachusetts, but it's too brightly lit to be the real thing. After all, this scene is taking place in 1775. The candlelight and hearths of colonial Massachusetts would absolutely not be throwing bright yellow light into the April night like they are on the panel. 
The houses from which those patches of light emanate don't really look to be pulled from reality or history either. In fact, there's kind of this layer of artifice that overlays the entire scene, as if we're looking down on a stage production populated by set pieces and actors. But these could also be toys set up in a child's room, because the proportions are all kind of a bit off, particularly between the figure of Paul Revere and his steed. If you haven't caught a glimpse of them yet, they are suspended in mid-air towards the lower left-hand side of the painting. The houses and the town buildings, including the church, are rendered in impossibly high contrast. They're very geometric. They feature uniformly smooth outer walls in shades of white and gray, and they cast these otherworldly shadows into the space behind them. The landscape features and the greenery which make up the background are also exceedingly geometric. The perfectly spherical trees are like my favorite touch, and they lend an air of whimsy, as if we're taking in this scene from a children's picture book. Now, the moon is implied but not depicted in Wood's scene. The inference we can make based on those long shadows is that the moon is spotlighting this drama taking place from just behind us. Like, if we were looking at this scene in real time, the moon would be right like above and behind our head off to the right. And again, the light it seems to be reflecting onto the scene is just impossibly bright. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, which houses this work as one of its few paintings by Grant Wood, says, quote, Despite the work's historical subject matter, Wood did not attempt to depict the scene with factual accuracy. The stylized houses, geometric greenery, and high perspective give the painting an otherworldly or dreamlike dimension. That artifice extends to the figures, too. In fact, Wood actually did use a child's hobby horse as a model for Paul Revere's horse. The people, there's a few leaning out of their upper windows, a few spilling out into the night from their front doors, and a few scattered along the side of the road. They're faceless. They appear to have been posed and placed within the scene. They could be toy figures or claymation models. And I love what this says, or maybe what Wood is saying, about the way that we manipulate our own history. We position everything so that it's, it's just so. The main action of the scene is pushed towards the center of the composition by the landscape that Wood has depicted. These small rolling hills and abrupt valleys occupy roughly the top half of the scene, but they are rendered completely almost unimportant by the shadows that engulf them. If you do kind of hone in on them, though, you can see that the road on which Revere is taking his midnight ride undulates across these hills, and ultimately, no matter which side of the canvas you start looking from, this road dips into the foreground of the painting, where it is bright and there's action. Thus, our gaze is funneled into the action of the scene by following the road, much like Revere would have done. If you look closely at the figure of Paul Revere, you will see that he's headed toward the houses and hills on the left side of the painting. Their inhabitants ostensibly have not yet been roused because their windows are still dark. Contrast that with the tiny pinpricks of light in the upper right of the scene along the road that Revere has already traveled. These tiny details show us his progress as well as the distance that he has yet to go. This painting was last on view in a 2019 exhibit at the New York Historical Society called Beyond Midnight, Paul Revere. And if you know me, you know what's coming next. I want to look beyond the painting at the real, the man, the myth, the legend, Paul Revere. 
From that exhibition, quote, the patriot, silversmith, and entrepreneur Paul Revere was forever immortalized in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1860 poem, Paul Revere's Ride. But his genuine accomplishments are often eclipsed by the legend of the midnight journey. Myself, I knew exactly two things about Paul Revere. One was that he took this ride, and the second was that he was a silversmith. And I know that because of a painting by American painter John Singleton Copley, which I will also have on the Instagram. It's such a beautiful, it's like a highly finished canvas. Everything is so shiny, and it shows Paul Revere holding one of his, I think, signature teapots. Um, it's beautiful. I've, I've seen it in person. It's a great painting. But that's, that's kind of it. <laughs> Much like Grant Wood himself, though, Paul Revere should be remembered as more of a Renaissance man than I think he actually is. He was, again, like Grant Wood, an innovative artisan working as a silversmith, a printmaker, and a pioneering copper manufacturer. He also stood at the intersection of social, economic, and political life during the formation of the new nation. I got a lot of this subsequent information here that I'm going to throw at you from the Paul Revere House Museum, just to kind of summarize the biographical facts of Paul Revere's life. Quote, born in Boston's North End on December 21st, 1734, Paul was the son of Apollos Rivoire, a French Huguenot or Protestant immigrant, and Deborah Hitchborn, who was the daughter of a local artisan family. Rivoire, who was born in France in 1702, changed his name to Paul Revere sometime after immigrating. He was a goldsmith and eventually the head of a large household. Paul was their third child and their eldest surviving son. In 1730, Paul's father moved the home and shop from Dock Square near the center of Boston into rented quarters in the North End. Paul was educated at the North Riding School and learned the art of gold and silversmithing in his father's shop. When Paul was 19 and nearly finished with his apprenticeship, his father died, leaving Paul as the family's main source of income. He spent some time fighting in the Massachusetts artillery as a second lieutenant. This would have been during the what we know as the French and Indian War. When he returned to Boston in the fall of 1756, Paul began in earnest to build the family silver business. He married in August 1757, Sarah Orne. Together they had eight children. And then, are you ready for this? Sarah died in 1773 and Revere remarried to one Rachel Walker, with whom he also, also had eight children. This man had 16 kids. I didn't know that. I think we should know that about Paul Revere. Revere's primary vocation was that of a goldsmith, which was a trade he obviously learned from his father. And although goldsmiths worked in both gold and silver, today we kind of call them silversmiths. So the terms, I think, are a bit interchangeable. I, I don't know the machinations of the smithing field. One thing that the Paul Revere house is adamant about for some reason is that Revere, quote, did not work in pewter. I'm guessing that's like seen as a lesser craft. I don't know. Quote, his silver shop was the cornerstone of his professional life for more than 40 years. As the master craftsman, Revere was responsible for both the workmanship and the quality of the metal alloy used. He employed numerous apprentices and journeymen. His shop produced pieces ranging from simple spoons to magnificent tea sets. His work was well regarded during his lifetime and is highly prized today. Now, following the French and Indian War, there was an economic depression in the American colonies, and Revere needed to supplement his income with other business ventures. 
He began at this time working as a copper plate engraver, producing illustrations for books and magazines, business cards, political cartoons, book plates, a songbook, and bills of fare for taverns. He also practiced as a dentist from 1768 to 1775, to the extent that his time and skills allowed. <laughs> I love this is a time when you could just say, I'm a doctor, I'm a dentist, and people would people would allow you to perform those services for them. Um, Revere, <laughs> Revere cleaned teeth, fastened in false teeth, and sold toothpaste. Contrary to a popular myth, he did not make George Washington's false teeth, and there is no evidence that he made full sets of dentures. In the lead-up to the American Revolution, Revere's political involvement, quote, arose through his, through his connections with members of local organizations and his business patrons. He was a Mason, a member of the Masonic Lodge of St. Andrew, where he was friendly with activists like Dr. Joseph Warren. In the year before the revolution, Revere gathered intelligence by, quote, watching the movements of British soldiers, as he would later write in an account of his midnight ride. That ride came about because of his role that he began in 1774. Revere was engaged by the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Massachusetts Committee of Safety as an express rider who carried news, messages, and copies of important documents as far as New York and Philadelphia. He took part in meetings that planned the destruction of the East India Company's tea in December 1773, and the next day he took it upon himself to spread the word of the Boston Tea Party to New York and Philly. Now, the real story of Revere's Midnight Ride, or as I, I think as at least as close as we can get to it, comes to us from accounts written by Revere himself shortly after he concluded his ride. Many historians have dissected Longfellow's poem since 1860, and they've compared it to Revere's own account of the ride and, of course, other historic evidence. Of the several inaccuracies between the history and the fable, three major points have been, quote, demythologized in the years since the poem's publication. I want you to see if you can pick them out in this account here. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On the evening of April 18th, 1775, Dr. Joseph Warren summoned Paul Revere and tasked him with riding to Lexington, Massachusetts, with the news that British soldiers stationed in Boston were about to march into the countryside northwest of the town. 
Quote, according to Warren, these troops planned to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock, two leaders of the Sons of Liberty, who were staying at a house in Lexington. It was thought that they would then continue on to the town of Concord to either capture or destroy military stores of gunpowder, ammunition, and several cannons that had been stockpiled there. This intelligence turned out to be faulty. The British troops had no orders to arrest or seize anyone, but they were very much about to march on some major mission out of Boston. Revere quickly contacted a friend and did instruct him to hold two lit lanterns in the Tower of Christ Church in Boston as a signal to the fellow Sons of Liberty who were across the river, uh, the Charles River, in Charlestown. But this was in case Revere was unable to get out of town himself to spread the alarm. The two lanterns were indeed a predetermined signal stating that the British troops planned to row, quote, by sea across the Charles River, rather than march by land out of Boston Neck. Now, there was some doubt that Revere would be able to get out of Boston as he had to have two friends row him past a British warship on his crossing of the Charles River. He did make the landing in Charlestown successfully. He verified that the Sons of Liberty had gotten the lantern message, and from there he set off on his ride to spread the message further around 11 p.m. He rode first through Medford and then arrived in Lexington around midnight. There, he found the house where Adams and Hancock were staying. Apparently, a guard stationed outside told him to stop making so much noise, and Revere replied, well, there's going to be a lot of noise here soon because the British are coming. Like, I, I love that. It's not as dramatic as, you know, riding through the town, ringing a bell, shouting, the British are coming, the British are coming. That's, that's not what happened here. But he did successfully deliver his message to Samuel Adams and John Hancock so that they could avoid the arrest that everyone thought was forthcoming. Revere was actually joined at this point by two other riders who were carrying the same information. These three men journeyed toward Concord together, but they were intercepted by a British patrol. The other two men, named Prescott and Dawes, managed to escape, but Revere himself was held in captivity for some hours before being questioned and then ultimately let go. His horse, sadly, was confiscated, so Revere had to turn back, he never made it to Concord, and he set back to Lexington on foot just in time to witness the latter part of the fighting on Lexington Green. Okay, so the inaccuracies. Number one. Paul Revere knew the route that the British would take before he left Boston. He didn't need to tell somebody to hang the two lanterns in the church tower. He was not waiting on the Charlestown shore to find out what the British were doing. Instead, those lanterns were kind of a fallback plan to communicate the message to Revere's intended recipients in case he could not get out of the city. Number two... Revere was captured by patrolling British regulars just past Lexington, and he never made it to Concord. And number three, I think the biggest one, Revere was not the only rider that night. He was one of two riders to leave Boston, and there were several more, including, I think it was Prescott, um, who were sent out after him to spread the alarm. The omission of those other riders was kind of a sore spot for particularly the descendants of those other riders. One of them was a descendant of William Dawes. 
um, he sent a copy of an account that Dawes had written to uh, Longfellow, who Riley remarked that it was, quote, a very handsome book in which he convicts me of some high historic crimes and misdemeanors. And none of this is to take away from Revere's legacy by any means. He played a pivotal role in the lead up to Lexington and Concord, and he did vitally succeed in like sounding the alarm, mobilizing the Americans, and in warning John Hancock and Samuel Adams, even if there was actually no imminent threat of a British contingent coming to arrest them. But it's also become clear throughout history that Longfellow knew all of this when he wrote his poem in 1860. He was known to conduct historical research before penning other pieces of historical poetry, so why the inaccuracies? Well, Longfellow wrote Paul Revere's Ride in 1860, in the midst of a national crisis that would break out into the American Civil War just a year later. Longfellow was a pacifist and an abolitionist. He was a friend, actually, of Senator Charles Sumner of the caning on the Senate floor incident. (laughs) In earlier decades, Longfellow had used his poetry to speak out against slavery and for the strength of the Union. Taking some poetic license, yes, Longfellow turned the singular character of Paul Revere into, quote, an icon of a unified patriotic past with resonance in the current political movement. Lucky you, you are about to get treated to another recitation of verse in illustration of this point. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For, born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. It's, it's powerful stuff. It's lyrical. It's, it's gripping at the heartstrings of America. And that's probably why in March 1861, only three months after Longfellow's poem was actually published, President Abraham Lincoln made a similar appeal in his inaugural address. Quote, The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. American history and memory was starting to be kind of, not I don't want to say weaponized, because it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it was being used uh, intentionally to evoke these sensations, these, these messages of unity and of wanting us to be proud of our shared heritage. And Longfellow had made Paul Revere and his ride icons of patriotism and of the American Revolution and everything that it stood for. And Grant Wood, almost, you know, what would it have been, 60 years later, definitely knew of the embellishments to Revere's saga when he painted his scene. What piece of our bygone national identity could he have been hearkening for 60 years after Abraham Lincoln and Longfellow hearkened back to the revolution for their own purposes? The Whitney Museum writes that Grant Wood's early landscapes, quote, do not depict Midwestern farm life in the 1930s. And I think that's true of Paul Revere's ride as well. You can kind of lump it in here. Quote, instead, they portray his idealized memory of the 1890s farm in Anamosa, Iowa, where he lived as a young boy before moving to Cedar Rapids with his family. 
His desire was not so much to portray a world that was becoming extinct as to recover a mythical childhood that existed only in his imagination. He, quote, recast the farmscape of his childhood into an Arcadian fantasy of undulating swollen shapes and decorative embellishments whose multiple focal points keep the viewer's eye in constant motion by giving all parts of the composition equal weight. Wood was painting a dreamscape, almost an imaginary rendering of this American myth, at a time when many Americans would have needed a form of escapism following the Black Friday crash and into the the first few years of the Great Depression. It wasn't so much an effort to keep the nation together as it was to keep people, I think, together and people whole and believing in the mission of this place where at one time or other, we were living the American dream. I want to wrap up how that American dream played out for both Paul Revere and Grant Wood here. Following the battles of Lexington and Concord, Revere and his family, remember 16 children, (laughs) lived in Watertown, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. During this time, he printed paper currency for the Massachusetts government and helped to acquire powder and ammunition for colonial troops. He went on to serve as lieutenant colonel in the Massachusetts State Train of Artillery and commander of Castle Island in Boston Harbor. He didn't see a lot of action in this role, but he did participate in a kind of disastrous expedition to um, Maine when it was the main district of Massachusetts before Maine was actually a state. The goal of this expedition was to capture a small British fort, um... It did not go well. There was no cooperation between the naval forces and the land forces. Little was accomplished before the British sent in a relief troop, squadron, whatever. Um, Paul Revere actually demanded a court-martial of, I think, himself during this uh, military excursion or after it wrapped up because he wanted to be found not guilty of cowardice and insubordination. It was just like kind of a shit show. And he was ruled not guilty of any and all charges in February 1782. Um, he, (laughs) He accepted this probably more than he should have as a vindication of his honor. And he returned to his business activities in Massachusetts. Following the revolution, Revere expanded his business interests even further, planning ultimately to turn the day-to-day operations of his silversmithing business over to his oldest son, Paul Jr., and to use the profits to invest in new businesses. He operated a hardware store in downtown Boston. By 1788, he also opened a foundry which supplied bolts, spikes, and nails for shipyards. He produced cannons of various sizes and cast bells. One of his largest bells still rings in Boston's King's Chapel. Not content with all of that, however, and apparently concerned that the fledgling America still had to import sheet copper from England, Revere opened the first successful copper rolling mill in North America in 1801. Revere Copper and Brass, Inc., the descendant of his rolling mill, is best known for Revereware copper-bottomed pots and pans, which is still available, although it's manufactured by a different company. As if that weren't enough, Revere also served as Suffolk County Coroner for several years in the 1790s. All of that dental experience probably served him well as well as he served as the president of Boston's Board of Health in 1799 and 1800. 
1811, at the age of 76, Paul Revere retired and left the copper business in the hands of his son and two of his grandsons. He seems to have been pretty healthy in his final years, although he did enter a depression when his wife Rachel and son Paul both died in 1813. Revere himself died of natural causes on May 10th, 1818, at the age of 83. He left five children, several grandchildren, and many great-grandchildren. An obituary in the Boston Intelligencer commented, quote, Seldom has the tomb closed upon a life so honorable and useful. Paul Revere is buried in Boston's Granary Burying Ground under a fittingly, I think, austere and rather plain white stone, which simply reads, Paul Revere, born in Boston, January 1734, died May 1818. Fast forward a century and some change, and Grant Wood didn't limit his depictions of American myth and legend to Paul Revere's story. Probably my favorite painting of his is also on the Instagram. It is called Daughters of Revolution from 1932, and it is a satirical portrait of three unattractive, beady-eyed old women who are standing smugly satisfied, we can infer, with their American Revolution ancestry. Wood called this painting his only satire, which I think we can, we can argue with that if we want, but he thought this was his only, like, outright parody painting. It came into being following a 1927 commission that Wood undertook to create a stained glass window in the World War I Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Cedar Rapids. Not content with the quality of the glass sources in Iowa or, I guess, other parts of the states, Wood used glass made in Germany in, I think, an amazing like reversal of Paul Revere founding his own copper rolling facility to bypass having to use English imported copper. In Wood's case, the local chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, the DAR, complained about the use of a German source for a World War I memorial, which, like, understandable, right? <laughs> Germany had been an enemy of the United States in that war, and they would be again in just, like, 10 years. <laughs> But I think that Wood himself didn't share that anti-German sentiment that lingered in American society. Remember, he had spent time on the European continent, he had studied in Munich, and but as a result of their protest, the DAR, as well as that of other residents in Cedar Rapids, the window was delayed and was not dedicated until 1955. Grant Wood was said to have described the DAR as, quote, those Tory gals and people who are trying to set up an aristocracy of birth in a republic. Five years later, he painted the Daughters of the Revolution. They stand before this, you all know it, right? The painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. Very heroic, another piece of American myth that forms our national identity, our source of national pride. Ironically, this painting was painted in Germany by Emanuel Leutze. One of the old women pinches a blue and white china teacup standing in front of this painting. Ironically, that is also probably imported. <laughs> and Wood has rendered these women so that they're almost, they're like washed out and they're almost blurry. They look like paper cutouts that are yellowing and fading away before our very eyes. It is a perfect depiction in every way. 
And this is what I love about Grant Wood. For all that he had decided that America needed a genre of art that was uniquely its own, he was not afraid to depict our national icons and myths in a multifaceted way. For this reason, I think his reputation had its ups and downs, depending on like when and where you might have um, run into it. But when approaching America's character as a subject for his art, Wood took into consideration not just our actual history, but also our attitudes and our beliefs about ourselves. In some areas, we're just wide-eyed children. We're listening raptly to daring tales of revolution and the mostly men who brought it about. But in other moments, we're stubborn. We're like the American Gothic farmer and his wife, or the Daughters of the Revolution, standing guard over our preconceived notions about our own story, whether we know them to be good or accurate or not. Wood's charm, and the reason that I think he's one of our most important painters on a national level, is his ability to juggle those two mindsets simultaneously. Because I think that many of us, and again, I'm speaking, what, like five days before I'm really excited to go party on July 4th, <laughs> Many of us, I think, grapple with and move between those two frames of mind when we think about our nation's past, and without getting too political here, when we think about its present and its future as well. During his lifetime, and even, I think, at the height of Wood's popularity, though, people balked at the revealing nature of his artwork. While he was teaching at the University of Iowa, Wood met and married a woman named Sarah Sherman Maxson, something that his friends apparently considered a mistake. Um, they were married for just about three years, from 1935 to 1938. That marriage was not the only thing that was short-lived, so was his kind of illustrious, in other ways, career at the university. While Wood was heralded for his modern eye when he began teaching there in 1934, a new administration was installed in 1936, along with a new chair for the art department. This was a man named Lester Longman. Longman was a historian of medieval Spanish art, something we haven't talked about on this show because it's kind of really depressing overall. Um, he preferred internationalist avant-garde modernism over Wood's quaint, as he called them, pictures. The two clashed immediately on subject matter and teaching style until 1940, when Wood wrote to the director of the School of Fine Arts, complaining that his department chair had a, quote, general disparagement of my work and what I am working for. Basically, he was being undermined. He asked for the studio art and the art history departments to be separated, which I think makes sense. <laughs> University administration, although apparently anxious to keep Wood on staff, he was their most famous faculty member, they denied his request, but instead they sent him on sabbatical for the 1940 to 1941 academic year. Longman took advantage of Wood's absence as an opportunity to discredit him. He publicly criticized his paintings and he showed slides at a conference lecture that demonstrated where Wood was working from photographs, which like, I think we all, like if, if you're a representational painter, that's like how, that's how you do it some of the time. It's just, it's just what happens. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Longman also alluded to Wood being homosexual in an attempt to further discredit him. Now, make no mistake, I think his real issue was with Wood's advancement of regionalism, of American pictures, but the homosexuality accusation was unfortunately the, th the thing that in 1940 could have destroyed Wood's reputation. 
The accusation seems to have been limited to a meeting within the university itself with the president regarding the, quote, strange relationship between Mr. Wood and his publicity agent. The problems in the art department were otherwise carefully documented, and this statement is like the only mention of Wood's personal life that that gets brought into it. Recent biographers, particularly one named R. Tripp Evans, do contend that Wood was indeed a closeted homosexual, something of which his friends were apparently well aware. One critic once wrote that Wood's friends viewed him as, quote, homosexual and a bit facetious in his masquerade as an overall clad farm boy. Some people speculate that they can read a, quote, gay sensibility in both Wood's persona and his work, things that are, I think, no, by no means conclusive, you know, especially where someone's actual sexuality is concerned. Scholarship has just begun to, like, connect the dots here, both in re-examining Wood's sexuality and his paintings through the lens of it. In curator David Ward's words, we only have a very surface-level understanding of Grant Wood's experience with the, quote, tension and difficulties faced by gay men who stayed behind in middle America. In 1941, Time magazine came to the University of Iowa to investigate the charges, quote-unquote, against Wood. They never did publish a story, but Longman did apparently make reference to them that Wood's, quote, personal persuasions had nothing whatever to do with our granting his leave of absence. After that point, Longman stuck to disparaging Wood's art. He penned articles, quote, calling upon defenders of true art to attack what he called reactionary and commu-Nazi art, including regionalism. He enlisted other artists whose names are kind of inconsequential today, thankfully, to jump on the bandwagon, perpetuating the view that Wood's, quote, sensationalist and provincial popularity was without enduring worth. Sadly for Lester Longman, Wood's art did end up standing the test of time. Mid-century celebrities like Cole Porter, Alexander Woolcott, and Catherine Hepburn all acquired pieces by him. In 1941, upon returning from his sabbatical, Wood was granted a new title and a studio, and he was removed from under Longman's supervision. But he never returned to teaching because he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that October. And in February 1942, the night before his 51st birthday, Grant Wood died at Iowa City University Hospital of that cancer. His health had been in decline since the late 1930s, and friends kind of noticed a shift in his persona as this campaign almost against him was going on. Nevertheless, Wood is today considered the patron artist of Cedar Rapids, if not of the Midwest. And in 2004, the Iowa State Quarter was designed in his honor. Maybe you have one in your piggy bank right now. His childhood country schoolhouse is depicted on its tail side, outside which a teacher and students are planting a tree. The inscription reads, Foundation in Education, and Grant Wood's name is right above the ubiquitous E Pluribus Unum. He remains, of course, one of America's most iconic artists, and his style is one that is both instantly recognizable and distinct of so-called American values, whatever, whatever those are. In a lot of ways, I think Wood's pieces remind us of simpler, more straightforward times, however optimistic that worldview might be on our own part. But if we have the wherewithal to sort of peel back the layers and get at the root of what Grant Wood is speaking to here, I think there's always a road for us to move beyond that and 
get in on the joke, so to speak. I think I think I'm gonna leave it there today. Um, there is one other painting by Grant Wood that I would include here. If um, I don't know if you can tell, my my throat really hurts, <laughs> um, so I need to go rest. But maybe maybe an art bite at some point. Um, yeah, we could do that. If you want to hear more on Grant Wood, I guess just shoot me a message. Let me know. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Share it with a friend. Tell your mom about it at your July 4th barbecue next week. Um, it really does. Truly, it helps me get in front of new listeners and make the show more sustainable the more of those things happen. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the show on our, our Instagram at Art of History Podcast. Um, I am on TikTok at Art of History Pod, and I continue to make my own videos. You know, I make those videos about the royal family. Maybe you've seen them. Um, also on TikTok at Mata of Fact. As always, of course, if you have questions or comments um, or you just want to, I don't know, send me a message, get in my inbox, <laughs> feel free to email me at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Thank you ever so much for listening. Until the next one. Mm-hmm.